0: Glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the create the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for that which is what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error. Which was due. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, it is uh, sobering to read such words and to find them come to fruition in our own day. Uh, the celebration and the triumph, and we'll see it again next time, of sin. And even the height of sin, the sin of homosexuality, embraced culturally uh, across left and right, uh, both major parties. Even much of the church, uh, it seems the fight has been lost Uh, but let there be a few pulpits at least which are willing, uh, to declare the truth of your word. And again, uh, as I prayed a little while ago, give strength to your people to face such terrible darkness as we find in our own days, uh, through the, through the preaching of your word. Amen. Well, as you can see, it's already cast something of a somber light upon my own soul, just reflecting on these things and praying to God. This is a terribly sober passage, and we have seen that. We will continue to see that next week, especially as we see this not as something which is... Theoretical, but what which is being played out in real time, I was imagining as I love the Puritans so much what it would be like for a Puritan to preach this passage and just to say, you know, the day might come in which this very thing happens in our own land. And yet uh, for them, you see, it would be something theoretical, something you could place out in the future. But as we read these verses, what we have to concede is that the very thing that Paul is describing, the wrath of God that is being revealed from heaven against the nations, is playing out in real time in our own day. And that is the sort of thing that is uh, difficult to cope with in a sense. Although as I end I do want to end with a word of hope. Uh, and to recognize how it is the church is supposed to respond to this sort of thing. But certainly not. Let it never be at least in this church by minimizing the sinfulness of sin. Which is uh, uh, the tendency of the church today. Or to focus on the wrong things. But to really pinpoint the issues of sin and wrath and so on. Well, as we've been doing, we are uh, looking at Paul's argument and we see that Paul was a very careful and systematic thinker. Almost every verse begins with a for or a because or something like that. It's a very detailed argument that is progressing step by step. And as we uh, proceed to consider the unfolding argument, which we have in Romans chapter 1, it's important that we keep in mind the structure of the argument as we find uh, uh, ourselves at a new stage in it. And here I'm proposing to look at verses 21 through 27, but to focus specifically on what is said in verses 24 through 27, which is, uh, the new material and then, Lord willing, we will look at the concluding verses of chapter one in verses twenty eight through thirty two. Next time, Paul, having told us that God's wrath is being revealed in verse eighteen and why it has been revealed in that same verse, namely uh, men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That is the truth about God, which he's plainly revealed to them and which they plainly knew. And then what is the result of seeing this, that men are suppressing the truth of God, which they knew? The result, he states in verse 21, is that man without it is without excuse. Having said that, we're able in verses 21 through 27 to discern two main lines of thought. One being the depravity of sin and two being the consequences of the depravity of sin. And as we see this as a continual unfolding of one great argument, we see this first point as the stated reason for the prior point. In other words, if you look at verse 21, you see that the first word there is because. Men are without excuse, verse 20, because Paul says. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and so on. They rejected the truth. They embraced a lie. And they were given to depravity and profanity. And having stated then in those verses what is in essence the process of moral degradation involved in unbelief, verses 21 through 23, he states next the consequences of this in verses 24 through 27. Therefore God, and we see what God does about it, the consequences of depravity. But first, the process of moral degradation which is involved in man's suppression of the truth, leaving him without excuse. Again, this is the reason men are without excuse. And you remember, this was an answer to the question which I asked last time. Is it fair that God should reveal his wrath against a man who is sinful and indeed one who is too sinful to repent on his own? And the answer was and is. Yes, it is fair for the simple reason that man knew better, as he describes in verses 18 through 20. And he even begins again with that thought in verse 21, although they knew God, they didn't make use of this knowledge. They didn't act in a way that this knowledge compels men to act. If only they were in their right minds, which is to glorify God and to thank him for uh, their existence. In In other words, to treat God as God and to live for God. If the creation declares anything, it is that, that men ought to live for God. But here at the second part of verse 21, having said, though they knew God, although they knew God, they did not glorify him, uh, nor were thankful in the second part, but became, he says, futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. We see the first step, which comes after men have suppressed the truth about God, which was so clear to them. The first step following that is futility and darkness begins to set in in their minds, in their hearts. In other words, they begin to experience a process of moral degradation. And the result of that is that their hearts and their minds, their wills, their thoughts, their beings, their actions, their desires are all given over to sin. In other words, if we were to look at this as a series of steps, we see that when men suppress the obvious truth about God, they are not left in a position of neutrality But rather they are placed into the category of those who are sinful and who are unbelieving and opposed to God. And the way that that is stated here is that uh, having their minds subjected to futilities, their hearts to darkness, is that they become fools. The folly of a madman lost in sin, that's what Paul is describing. The folly of unbelief, the folly of sin. Which is what he says next in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Wise in what sense? Wise in the sense of human wisdom, men who thought they knew better than God, men who thought they didn't need God, or even perhaps like Adam, who thought that they could be as God. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And so the glory of man is not so great as he thought. He imagined, as with Adam, that to to deny God was to be as God. Was to raise himself above God himself. But the reality is not that man is reaching into the heavens and even beyond and above God himself. It is rather that in the pursuit of wisdom and human learning in rejecting God men are subjected to futility and darkness and their mind and their hearts become depraved. Again it is a process of moral degradation at every step man is getting worse and worse and worse. John Murray, reason estranged from the source of light led them into a delirium of vanity. To try to be wise apart from the source of wisdom is what Paul is describing and what John Murray is describing. It doesn't lead to wisdom. It leads to the opposite. And these are indeed the characteristic features of unbelief. The futility of the thinking, the darkness, and so forth. The same things that we find in, and saw in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 Through 19. And yet we see that the yearning for God is never fully suppressed, even in the heart of the unbeliever. John Murray, again, the mind of man is never a religious vacuum. And this is what Paul says next in verse 23. These uh, foolish wise men, they change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four footed animals and creeping things. That is the final step in the process of uh, of moral degradation involved in unbelief with respect to God. The final step is the blatant idolatry of unbelief. There uh, you notice that man does not give up fully his feeling of divinity. It's something that he can never fully suppress or escape. But rather than rejecting it. Entirely or denying the existence of God, Paul says here, as well as in verse twenty five, that he changes it, he transforms it or he exchanges it for something else. He changes what he knows to be true for a lie. He changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Verse twenty three again, verse twenty five, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And the way he does so is like this. Again, it is not so much uh, the denial of the divine. That is not what you find as the final stage of unbelief fully worked out. Not so much that he denies God as what he does with the whole idea of God. Man takes all of the glory out of God. This immortal, invisible, eternal being. Everything the creation plainly declared about him. And man, in rejecting all this, decided he liked it better if he could control and contain the God he worships. And so he just makes him like himself. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, they materialize him, this immortal, immaterial being distinct from his creation, as his creation itself declares about him. They materialize him. They make him like the creation Rather than seeing him as one who is essentially different. They see him as one who is essentially like the creation he has made. Because it is this very feature that makes them so easy. The fact that God is different. This is what tells them that God is in control. And that as a result of this. Not only has he created the world and thus themselves. But that they as moral agents are responsible and answerable to him. For their sins and their rejection of him. And that, uh, as we saw, they ought to devote their lives to him as those who glorify him and thank him. You see, the unbeliever realizes that. He recognizes that if God God is really God, as one who is eternal, invisible, immaterial. One who is essentially different than the creation. Then that is a God that ought to be worshipped. And that that is a God who is in control. Oh, but a God that is just like them. That is something that gives them control. And so, as Calvin says, the initial seed of divinity implanted in every human soul is corrupted by man in sin. This is what he says. They judge God's greatness according to their own crude understanding. They comprehend him not as he has made himself known, but according to the image which they they themselves have arrogantly fashioned. Verses 23 and verses 25. They worship the creator rather the creation, excuse me, rather than the creator. But Paul, uh, having outlined the steps of the moral degradation involved in unbelief, would have us to see the monstrosity of this, the monstrosity of man worshiping anything but the creator. Is this wisdom, he says, is this true light? No, no. This is darkness and vanity and sin. It is man groveling in the dust when he was meant to yearn for the things of heaven. Again, the appalling darkness that we see in unbelief. Look at man never fully succeeding in giving up the religious impulse implanted in his soul by the divine maker, but rather changing it into something it is not. Indeed, it's opposite. Thus, we see the perversion of unbelief is the inversion of the true and the good and the divine. They not only distort the truth, but they turn it on its head. And so let us see here the depravity of unbelief, Paul is saying. And the profound depths to which it leads man. There is, in fact, nothing worse, nothing more sinful than what Paul is describing here, exchanging the glory of God for the glory of his creation. Here is the essence of idolatry, which God forbids in the second commandment and in so many other places. Where he declares that he will not give his glory to another. And yet that is precisely what man in unbelief does. It, again, it is not simply his denial of the divine, but his glorying in something other than the divine and his worship. Of the creation rather than the creator. It is here in this process of inversion that men have reached the height of blasphemy for which they are justly damned. For there is nothing worse than glorying in something other than God. And by this process once more, it is clear that no man really succeeds in denying the existence of God. He merely perverts it, which is worse In his devotion, if you were to think of the modern idols and the the modern gods, which the wise man professes to be his wisdom, man in his devotion to science or to evolution or to philosophy or whatever the fad of the day might be, even what he calls atheism with its strangely religious fervor, he is guilty of exactly what Paul is describing in these verses. Not the rejection of religion but the embrace of of, of religion of another kind, confirming the truth of what he says in verse 20, that men are without excuse, as the just wrath of God is revealed against them. But we see next in verses 24 through 27, the consequences of this. The result of this process of degradation, leading man to worship the creation rather than the creator, is stated in verse 24 and then restated in verse 26. Just as we notice that the thought of verse 23 is restated in 25. Well, he says in verse 24, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Likewise, verse 26 for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is natu- against nature. And also verse 27. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error. The idea is stated like this. If if uh, not chapter, but the first point in verses twenty one through twenty seven, twenty three was what man does with God. Man takes the idea of God and they first they rob, they suppress the truth and they they take all the glory out of God. And then they begin to worship the creature rather than the creator. That's what man does with God. The response of verses twenty four through twenty seven is what God does with man in unbelief. And what God does with man in unbelief is to hand him over. Or, or actually, as I was translating this myself, I think I prefer uh, the more natural rendering is to deliver over. In other words, men reject God, point one, and so God rejects man, point two. That's more or less the idea of these verses when you take them together. And what God gives man over to in his wrath is sin, and in particular to uncleanness. And what this uncleanness consists of precisely is stated in verses 24, 26, and 27. In particular, he says homosexuality, rather that of the female or of the male form. And I'll I'll try to explain why he highlights that in particular. Uh, But on this point, the whole idea of handing over God's response to the unbelief of man, there's several points which are necessary. And the first is that the depravity of the sin involved in unbelief is radically enhanced and taken to its farthest extreme, that of homosexuality. So you see man operating in the realm of belief, leading him to unbelief, then brings him into the the realm of morality leading him to immorality, and one extreme leads to the other idolatry leading to uh, the most perverse form of immorality, namely that of homosexuality. Again, I would say here what I said at the beginning of the sermon. In many ages, this would have seemed to be hypothetical, something you read about in the history books, perhaps in uh, the Roman culture of the first century, and certainly it was present there. But you can imagine in Puritan England, for instance, or even in the colonial days of America, this was not particularly a sin that the nation was facing. Oh, but how it rings true now. How we are able to see the truth of what God is saying when all men alike, it would seem, are agreed in this land that homosexuality is not moral perversion, but that it is something which is allowable and even virtuous and good. You notice again the process of inversion involved in the depravity and futility and the darkness of unbelief. Man's depravity and feudal thinking becomes radically evident in the fact that he once again inverts the natural order and he lends his approval to such things. The first inversion is exchanging God's glory for that of the creation. The second consequent inversion is exchanging the natural order of the creation that God has made and turning it on its head. An order which is evident in the creation account in the creation of the man and the woman. In the relation that they were to sustain to one another uh, as husband and wife, the two shall become one. Precisely what happened here yesterday between Mark and Mary. But that is exactly what man rejects in unbelief, in rejecting God himself. He rejects the order of his creation. And no longer is it man and woman coming together as one, but it's man and man Women and women. And so we see the sins of the first century working themselves out again in the 21st century. So let me say again, the rejection of God is most evident in the rejection of the created order. My second point with regard to this act of handing over is that the act of giving over described here is seen as a result of prior activity. For man first rejects God, and this is taken to its positive religious extreme where the rejection is complete, as seen in the worshipping of something other than God. And to this, God responds by giving man over. Well, we've seen that uh, already, but it should be noted that the sin of extreme sexual immorality is not the result of God's giving man over. Such lusts were already present in men's hearts. Such sins were already being committed. What is involved in the act of handing over is not the sin of homosexuality, but it is rather the intensity to which man is able to pursue that sin. It is rather uh, thus that such sins now are allowed to proceed with an intensity that had not previously been allowed by God. That there is nothing anymore to restrain or check the lusts of their heart. Verse 24. God also gave them over to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts. It is man unrestrained. Man unchecked by uh, the divine common grace of God. And so uh, prior to this. Even though these sins Had occurred to man. And to some extent were being committed. They do not originate as a result of the handing over. But once the handing over has occurred. God as it were. No longer restrains man in his sinfulness. Prior to this he did not allow man to go as far as he might go. And yet Paul is saying there is a point. At which God lets go. And he allows sin to proceed unchecked. And to uh, proceed along its full course, where God says to man, in essence, you take this as far as you like and see what happens. Live as though there were no God in this world and no order to the creation. Give full vent to your unclean lusts. Do not hold back. I will not hold you back. Allow this process of inversion and moral degradation to take its full course. To reject all that is natural and to embrace what is unnatural. But then my third comment is this. That it is not enough to say, however, that this process is one of mere negation. As though God were simply letting go. Because Paul is describing something even beyond that. He, God is letting go, but he's also saying that involved in this process Is a positive judicial retribution upon man. As though God himself were pushing man into sin. As though God were saying, if sin is what you really want, then I will let you have it. And you will have more of it than you can bear. And this is what Paul says at the end of verse 27. He says, men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Again, you notice that Paul is describing a positive process of divine retribution. Because, as he says throughout uh, or at the beginning and what he is describing throughout is the wrath of God revealed against the ungodly and the unrighteous. Men receiving penalty for their errors. From whom? From themselves? No, from God. It is God who is punishing man by allowing him and even delivering him over into uh, his terrible depravity. Then my fourth comment is this. We must realize that Paul is describing In both of these sections, uh, sin in its most extreme form, unbelief as seen in idolatry, that is the most extreme form of of unbelief, and unrestrained immorality as seen in homosexuality, you cannot descend any deeper in either of these two trajectories than this. But at the same time, we must also see how this condemns every lesser sin. And if you remember in our treatment of the Ten Commandments, that is precisely how we should treat Scripture. In condemning every greater sin, God is also condemning every lesser sin. And you ought to remember here, as it will become especially evident in chapter 2, that Paul's greater point in this greater section is not just to single out the worst offenders. Because it is possible, and indeed the Jews were saying in the Christian church in the first century, well, of course, the wrath of God is revealed against homosexuals and idolaters. But Paul's point in the broader section is to point out that all are given to unbelief, and all are given to immorality, and all are thus justly condemned uh, and subject to the wrath of God. And so it isn't just the worst offenders that Paul is talking about. But it is everyone, he says, who is liable to the wrath of God. All of us together have transgressed God's law. All of us are guilty. How do we know? Well, again, remember the principle that the the lesser transgressions are condemned by the greater transgressions. Perhaps we've not bowed to an idol as men were apt to do in those days. But we've all had thoughts of God that were unworthy of God. We all have at times crafted a God after our own image, if only that we might control him and say to God, Lord, my will be done, not thine. Every time we sin, that is exactly what we do. Likewise, in the realm of morality, every way that we behave that is unnatural and unbecoming and rebellious to the the divine order. For instance, men acting like women. And women acting like men. Well, that—that that is just what Paul is describing in its most extreme form through homosexuality. But every lesser form is a rejection of the divine order and thus of God himself. And the point that we are meant to see and that we will see, especially as we come to chapter 2, is that I too am included. The the lesser aggravations nevertheless belong in the same category. And thus there's none who's able to say, I'm exempt from the wrath of God. If you just look at what he says in. Chapter two, verse one, just to begin to anticipate that, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. You see, Paul is speaking And I'm preaching that sermon in advance a little bit here. But Paul is speaking to the man who says, you know, I'm not like that. I agree that everything you said in chapter one is true. But thank God I'm not like that. And Paul says, do you know you are? You're just like that. You condemn that man, but you're just like him. But the reason going back to the extremes is my fifth comment. The reason that Paul highlights the extremes of unbelief as seen in idolatry and immorality as seen in homosexuality is in order to make abundantly clear how it is that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against the world of unbelief and a world of unrighteousness. How it is that God is making his wrath evident and manifest to an unbelieving world and it is by allowing these things to take their full course by no longer restraining them or checking them. It is seen, in other words, in the way God allows and even in some sense, as we saw, encourages and pushes man into sin. Allowing the process of moral and religious degradation to take its full course. In other words, if you to ask the question, and I think it's a good question to be asking today. Why are men as bad as they are? Why have things gotten so bad so quickly? So evil, so unbearable to those who have any sense of decency and godliness and righteousness. And do you realize that the answer to the question, why have things gotten so bad so quickly, is God? God is the one who has done this. That God is the one who's given man over in such a way that sin is able to run its full course. For man now to reach before our very eyes, the very bottom of the barrel and descend no further. Again, the parallels between this day and our own are obvious. They're all too obvious. And if you were to ask the question, can man really get any worse than this? The answer is thankfully, no, he cannot. But you would be foolish to think uh, in reading Paul that he's describing something that will happen to us. The reality as I've said, and let me say again, dear brothers and sisters, is that what Paul is describing has already happened? The process of handing over handing over, is something that God has already done, evidently. What is the explanation? Why has God done this? The answer is found in verse 18. The answer is the wrath of God, which he is revealing from heaven. God is revealing his wrath. He is revealing his displeasure to man. And yes, let us say, to our own nation and even to the church. He is indicating to man his terrible displeasure with sin. And there is no injustice in God doing this. He is only, again, verse 27, giving giving man the penalty for his error. He is giving every man what he deserves. He is causing man to suffer the penalty for his sin, which for the present... I know this seems to be a paradox, but this is the very truth of Scripture, which we find in our own day. The penalty for sin is more sin. That's what God is allowing to happen. And so as a result of this, he is allowing and even causing life on earth to become a very hell on earth. To get a sense and a glimpse of what hell is like, where there's no God to restrain and to check the sinfulness of man. But that sinfulness is allowed to take its full course. And to what end is God doing this? It is in order that men might see their true state and that they might comprehend that before God, they are indeed without excuse and that without God on account of sin, they deserve not only hell on earth, but hell in hell. And that is, beloved, wherein the wrath of God is revealed in God, not only giving man over, but thereby indicating to man his displeasure for sin. But at the same time, my last comment is this. God is also indicating something else. And this gives us a sense of how we as Christians ought to respond to this. Especially from the standpoint of the church. What is the answer of the church? What is the response of the church? Well, we find that for as bad as man has become. Paul is saying that the gospel is revealed to him. That is the greater point being made. In the book of Romans, and it's the only reason he goes into the trouble of explaining the wrath of God revealed against all unrighteousness and sin. It is to explain the context in which the gospel is preached and revealed to man. If you go back to the prior point in chapter one, verses 16 and 17. Paul is saying that there is no distinction whatsoever. Here is a gospel for everyone. It is the power of God to save anyone who has faith. In other words, there is no one who is not able to be saved by this gospel, no matter how bad he has become. If only he has faith. That is the amazing claim of the gospel, beloved. That however bad man has become, God is able to save him. And God is willing to save him, even the worst offenders and the vilest sinners, even me. And that is why Paul was so amazed and so proud and so eager to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed to preach it, he says, but I'm eager to preach it because he understood this point. Look at man and sin. Look at the world today. Consider all this as the result of the wrath of God being revealed Oh, yes, but also consider this, Paul says, I have a message for the worst and the vilest sinner, which tells him that even he can be saved. And that is something I am excited to tell you about. That is something I'm excited to declare. That is my message to the world. I am a debtor, he says, both the Greeks and the barbarians, both the wise and unwise. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. That, beloved, is the glory of the gospel, that whoever has faith might be saved by it. And I ask you only then in closing, have you believed the gospel? Amen. And let us come now to the table.